have your Bibles, please take them and open them to the book of Micah. And also, put your finger in there and turn as well to Jeremiah chapter 26. We'll be reading the first verse of Micah and then a short snippet from Jeremiah chapter 26, looking at verses 16 and 19. Starting in Micah chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth. In the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. And then Jeremiah 26, starting in verse 16. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophet, This man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Micah of Morsheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. You may be seated. And as we do, let us together seek the Lord in prayer. Our Father God, as we have just sang, we do ask that you would indeed speak to us. That you would fulfill all of the purposes for your glory. That these words that you have given to us in ages past, yet still are as true today as they were then. That they would prevail over the unbelief of our own hearts this morning. May you move us to greater treasure and value and to seek you as you are found in your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We pray this to the glory of your name. Amen. This morning we're beginning a new sermon series in the book of Micah. And this series is going to run alongside of Pastor Reed's ongoing series in Mark's gospel that he will continue in a couple weeks. And if all goes according to plan, we will wrap up this series in Micah around the end of September. For many, the book of Micah has some level of familiarity. Micah 5, which we read just last Sunday during our Lessons and Carols service, points to that Bethlehem being the place where the great shepherd and the true shepherd of God's people would come. We know that shepherd would be Jesus Christ. Also, Micah 8, which is probably the most quoted passage in all of at least the minor prophets where Micah says he has told you O man what is good and what the Lord requires of you but to do justice to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God then there's the closing song at the very end in verses 18 through 20 of chapter 7 that we have used at times as our assurance of pardon here in our worship services where it declares that while God is a holy and righteous God, he is also merciful, compassion, faithful, and who will abundantly pardon. And it is the opening of Micah's song where he starts by saying, Who is a God like you that serves as the title for our series in this book? For the book as a whole seeks to both confront the people of God with the reality of who their God is. He is the God who takes sin and evil seriously. He will not ignore it. He will bring judgment against it. And he's going to hold his people accountable. And yet he is also the God who offers hope, even in the face of judgment. 
He will not abandon his people or forsake his promises. He will save. And this is how the book of Micah is structured as a whole. It mixes both messages of warning and judgment with messages of hope and deliverance. But for our time this morning, I just want to focus on this opening verse along with that complimentary passage in Jeremiah 26. For that verse, even though it seems very short and very just matter of a fact, it does set the stage for everything that will follow. It reminds us of what should be obvious, but still bears repeating for the people of God today, tomorrow, and in the days to head. That the word of God not only instructs, but aims to humble and lead his people to fear and repentance. As the word of God aims not only to instruct, but humble and lead his people to fear and repentance. And it is the word of God that gets the emphasis in this opening verse. And so I want to look at the word in these three parts, these three points that are in your bulletin. The word that came, the word that saw, and the word that conquered. Hopefully very easy to remember. And in doing so, I pray that the Holy Spirit will apply the same word to our hearts. To not just instruct us so we walk away having grasped a new knowledge. But to walk away in humility and in renewed fear of the Lord. We start first with the word that came. Now between living both far away from family and also having lots of family... The Christmas season in the Coyle household has felt like a constant flow of packages being delivered, left at the door. And every time our kids would open the door or notice that someone came brought a package, they would open the door and, what is it? What is it that came? There was mystery. There was intrigue. What could possibly, could it have been that had come to our door? At this point, the presents have been opened, so all the mystery is gone. But for the prophet Micah, there's no mystery. What Micah received and delivered to the people of God was the very word of God. The construction, the way that the first phrase is is put together makes this abundantly clear. It says the word of the Lord that came to Micah. Now we may miss it, but for those who are unfamiliar with Hebrew, in Hebrew sentences usually start actually with the verb. The verb comes first, the subject comes second. That's the normal way Hebrew sentences are are structured. When the reverse happens and the subject comes first, it's intentional. It's telling you something. It's making a point of emphasis. And you can guess then what is the construction here. Came does not come first. The word of the Lord is what comes first. The word of the Lord is the emphasis in this opening verse. The book of Micah is not the ramblings of a man, even a significantly religious man. It is not Micah seeking to give helpful advice or offer some valuable insight to the people of God. The words, in fact, are not even first and foremost Micah's, but the Lord's. Israel's covenant God the creator of heaven and earth, the Holy One. And as one commentator writes, this very beginning, with it, our shoes should be off our feet as we hear this word read. The God of the covenant has spoken, and his people need to hear. 
He is declaring what we, what the people of God desperately needed to hear. And as we're going to see in the weeks ahead, the message is, part of it, is that judgment is coming. First, it's coming for the northern kingdom that is ripe for destruction. And the southern kingdom is close on her heels. For the covenant has been broken. And the other side of the message is, is that there is hope. And it's in God and God alone. You're not going to find hope in running to the other nations. Assyria can't help you. Babylon can't help you. Egypt can't help you. Neither are religious practices going to help you. New procedures. And for sure, false messages from the prophets that everything's okay. There is peace are not going to help you either. The Lord is the only hope of his people. And he's speaking to remind them graciously and mercifully to warn them and to call them back to himself. And it is this word of the Lord then that we see comes to Micah. Now we're not given many details about the way this word came to Micah. We get some insight later on in chapter 3 when Micah says, But as for me, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord. It suggests some kind of dynamic event, maybe a vision, maybe a word received verbally or audibly from the Lord that Micah then wrote down and recorded. But we're also not given much detail about who this Micah of Morsheth is besides Micah of Morsheth. Most prophets, they get identified by their heritage, son of X, son of Y. But Micah is identified by his hometown which likely points to the reality that Micah was a nobody. He was relatively insignificant. Because if you're not steeped in Israelite geography, which I doubt there are many are, Morsheth was about 25 miles to the west of Jerusalem, closer to the coast, but it was a small rural town. And verse 14 of chapter 1 suggests that actually its most striking feature was who its neighbor was, Gath. It's not even known for, it, for, for anything about itself. It's known for being close to Gath, the bigger, more well-known city. And so while Micah may have served, and he did as a professional prophet in Jerusalem, he wasn't born as an insider. He wasn't born as a Jerusalemite. He was an outsider called by God to faithfully declare the word to God's people. He was unspectacular. He had no resume that would warrant people listening to him aside from the fact that it is the word of God that he is speaking. And yet he's still Micah, called by God to declare his word to his people. It is actually in his relative obscurity that it further points to the importance of the one who's speaking through him. And we also see in this first verse that this word came at a very specific time during the kings of Judah. It says, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah... This puts this word in its historical context. This period spans roughly the last 60 years of the 8th century. Micah's formal ministry probably began towards the end of Jotham's reign and likely ended towards the beginning or the middle of Hezekiah's. And we could spend a lot of time just working through the character of each of these kings and their reigns, but for the sake of time, let me just summarize for you using 2 Kings 15 through 18. Here's what is said about Jotham. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, ordered his ways before the Lord his God. 
Thumbs up for Jotham. Ahaz, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, for he made Judah act sinfully. Thumbs down for Ahaz. Many consider him to be the worst of the, of the southern kings in their 19-king history. Hezekiah, finally, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, seeking his God. He did this with all his heart and prospered. Thumbs up for Hezekiah, who is considered, if Ahaz is one of the worst, Hezekiah is held up as one of the best. And so we see that this word came during this period of, of mixed results in Judah. There's varying degrees of faithfulness and unfaithfulness, rebellion and obedience, prosperity and barrenness of both physical and spiritual kinds. If we're honest, it's very much a, a period like our own. A period that constantly needs to come back to the word of God and to listen to it, to hear it, to hold it up so that we may look into it. Which then begs the question for us this morning, are you and I treating and valuing Scripture, every part of it, for what it is. The Word of God, the Creator of heaven and earth, our covenant God, the Holy One. Do we turn to it, not to some experience, not to some outside source, in order to hear God speaking to us? Because this is where He promises to speak to us. Are we engaging with it on a regular and consistent basis? For this is where God promises to equip his people, to meet with his people, to instruct us, to guide us, to equip us, as Paul says, for every good work. We're not going to experience it apart from treasuring, regularly availing ourselves to the living and to the abiding word of God contained here in the pages of scripture. So we see first that the word came, and second we see that the word saw. Seeing God, seeing as God is the only one who sees and knows all, his word given to Micah came for the very purpose of exposing their sin and rebellion. Again, since we've moved to our home just a few years ago, you were probably like us, we're in the mail, you're frequently getting flyers and, and ads to, for fixes, for updates, for things that your home may require to look better, to function better. But the reality is, none of these companies are aware that I have these problems. They're hoping that I might think I do, and then I'm going to call them up, they'll come out, they'll, they'll, they'll quote it, they'll start to repair it, and they'll slap me with the bill. But Micah is not suggesting fixes or updates for the people of God, or that they might need. He, pro he himself probably knows what they need just from living amongst the people of God, but he knows even more specifically because it's the word of God that's been given to him to expose the condition of, his people, of God's people. So Micah, as we heard earlier from James 1, serves to be the one holding up the, the mirror of God's perfect law, requiring the northern and the southern kingdoms to look at what was shown. And we will spend the upcoming weeks and months looking at these various things. But for this morning... It's enough to say that the word saw the sins and all of its consequences for all the people of God. First, we see, it says, he saw concerning Samaria. You might ask, who is Samaria? What is Samaria? Samaria is the people of God, but it's of the northern kingdom of Israel. 
If you remember your history, the ten tribes rebelled against Solomon's son and established this rival kingdom in the north. Samaria was the head, the royal city. And from its very beginning, Samaria was a rebellious, wicked, and corrupt kingdom. It started with Jeroboam, the first king, where he said, I don't want you going to the temple in Jerusalem because I might lose you. So here, here are two golden calves. Worship these. He even said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And from Jeroboam, we find that zero, that's a goose egg, of the 19 kings were good. All of them were evil. All of them were wicked. All of them were corrupt, and they led the north in all sorts of wickedness, corruption, and evil. We see the prophet Amos, another prophet of insignificant beginnings, preaching to the north a generation before Micah, where he called them out for selling the righteous and the needy, trampling the head of the poor, laying themselves down before every and any altar. And then we have the prophet Hosea, a contemporary of Micah, called to the northern kingdom, where he, in much more graphic language, simply said, Israel's defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is in them, and they know not the Lord. Samaria was a place of moral and utter rot. And the word of the Lord saw this rot. It declared God's judgment was coming for it. Too long had she wallowed in her sin. Too long had she ignored the word of the, of the Lord. Too long had she broken covenant. And we know in 722 that during Micah's ministry, the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrian Empire, fulfilling what we'll look at next week in the first seven verses of Micah's word. For Samaria, her sins were obvious. They were front and center for everyone to see, and the word of the Lord further exposed it and called their sins to account. But we see that the word not only saw the north, the word also saw the south. It saw the word, the, saw concerning Jerusalem. Who is Jerusalem? You're probably more familiar with Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the city that David conquered and established as the royal city. The temple is in Jerusalem. The Lord dwells with his people in the temple in Jerusalem. And it was upon the kingdom split that the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and the Levitical priesthood stayed. But as we know, the track record for the southern kingdom, while certainly not as bad as the north, wasn't too much better. They had eight of their 19 kings who were good. The rest were evil like their brothers in the north. But because of its history and its significance, Jerusalem had a tendency of, of, of being confident in themselves, of thinking that they were good, or at least good enough. For they had the temple and the priesthood. How bad could things be? We still have it. We have the line of David. Our brothers in the north, they don't have that. We have the legitimacy of Jerusalem, the divine warrant of Jerusalem. And because of their arrogance, their sins were all often not so obvious. Yes, there were certainly plenty of times where they rivaled Samaria in their idolatry and adultery. Ahaz's reign was such a time. 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28, we read of Ahaz making images, of burning his own sons at the altars of false gods, of sacrificing on all the high places. 
in the names of all the gods of the nations. But at other times, the sins of Judah were much more subtle, much more discreet, but no less worthy of judgment and no less evil. And as we'll find, Micah's words fall more in directing at these categories. Micah is certainly calling out the obvious sins, but he's coming to expose the more subtle, the more discreet sins of God's people. Things like oppressing the poor, perverting judge, uh, justice, false prophets claiming to speak in the name of the Lord, or the worst of them all, false worship that's cloaked, that's dressed up, that's under the facade of genuine worship. And what Micah sought to, to show the people is that the word of the Lord saw these sins and more. You can't keep those hidden. Judah, you also need to be exposed. Judah, you also need to be called back into covenant faithfulness. And Judah, you need to hear the warning. If you don't heed and turn from your sin, you will suffer the same fate as your brothers in the north. Judgment will come for you as well. And so taking our earlier application one step further... Are we allowing the word of God not simply to inform us, but also to expose us? And not just expose the sins that we know are there, the sins that we are fully aware that we struggle with, but also those sins that either we're completely unaware of or we're attempting to hide. Are we allowing the, the word of God to plumb the depths of our hearts? To see the evil and the corrupt places that still are there. The more discreet sins. The areas where we think we are okay. But the truth is, your sin is going to be exposed whether you want it to or not. For Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13 tell us this very clearly. Where the author says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. If we're honest with ourselves, when we read scripture or when we hear scripture, we immediately start identifying those who need to hear it. Oh, I wish he would have been there to hear this word. It applies to them directly. Or, oh, I need to go give this word to her. Because it speaks directly to what she is dealing with. This is often the default of our hearts. And while I'm not saying these aren't true, I'm not saying there isn't a time for us to, to confront a brother or sister in their sin. The exposure needs to always start with us, both individually and corporately. It needs to start where David closes Psalm 139, where he says it's a prayer that we should be humbled to pray. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts, and see if there's any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The word of God sees the grievous ways that are still in the hearts of his people. 
it sees the thoughts and the desires of our hearts? Will we, by God's Spirit, and by our walking with the Spirit, open our eyes to what the Word of God may be exposing to us? May we be willing to, to come alongside with what the Word is seeing and see it for ourselves. And finally, then, this brings us to the Word that conquers. We just heard from Hebrews 4 how the, the Word of God is living and active, that it has power in its working. And we know from Isaiah 55, the section after our assurance of pardon this morning, that the word of God has a purpose in it and that it will succeed in its purpose according to what the Lord's intent is. And what we find from this supplemental passage that I'm calling from Jeremiah 26 is that the word that was given to Micah did such a work in Judah. It brought about, it worked the fear and repentance of the people of God in the south. And we should be comforted by this because we're not often given the results of the prophet's words. Especially when the results are a positive. Sure, we know the results of Jonah's words that he preached in Nineveh. Nineveh saw a revival or renewal and they were spared God's judgment. We have a couple examples from the prophet Isaiah in Hezekiah's time where he responded to the word. But other than that, we know that the prophets were, were little liked, poorly treated, and even Jesus would rebuke the leaders in his day for rejecting, abusing, and even killing the prophets of the Lord. But in this short little snippet from Jeremiah 26, we see from the life of probably the most despised prophet, Jeremiah, that there was a positive result in the ministry of Micah during the reigns of these kings, particularly Hezekiah. It brought about true transformation and renewal among the people of God. And just a brief note about what's going on here in Jeremiah 26. Jeremiah has been preaching God's judgment against the south. It is coming. And the result has been, he's been thrown in prison. He's been charged with speaking against the city. And the leaders, particularly the religious leaders, have a death sentence on him. They think he's worthy of death because of the word that he has preached. And so they have this trial. And in this trial, it is the judges, the elders, and the people who come to Jeremiah's defense. And they point to the prophet Micah as their argument. Look at verse 18 of, Jer of Jeremiah 26, where they say, Micah of Morsheth, he prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and he said to the people of Judah, and then they quote Micah 3, 12, which we'll look at later. But in that passage, it foretells the destruction of Judah. So they come and they say, Micah said the same exact thing that Jeremiah said. And you've thrown Jeremiah in prison, but how did the people respond when they heard it? And they said, did not Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah, did they put him to death? Obvious answer, no. Did they not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? Implied answer, yes. And so we see how the word of God given to Micah conquered the sin of the people. Hezekiah, upon hearing this word of judgment, this word of hope, responded 
covenant renewal. He led the nation in repentance and turning from their sin, turning to the Lord. 2 Chronicles 29-31 through 31 document this renewal. It included a, a full cleansing of the temple, a restoring of true temple worship of Yahweh, and it included a reinstituting of the Passover and a reorganizing of the priest as David had told the people to do. But before all of those acts of renewal, Hezekiah stood up and spoke to the leaders of God's people. And he confessed these things. Our fathers have been unfaithful. They've done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. Therefore, the wrath of God has come on Judah and Jerusalem. And he's made them an object of horror and astonishment. He's recognizing the sin of the people. And then he says, now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn from us. He took the words of the prophet offering hope for those who returned to the Lord and led the people in returning to the Lord. And in doing so, they set the example for all of God's people in all times for how we should respond to the active and to the exposing word of God when it shines its light on the darkness of our own sin. We should respond in humility and in worship. And the result for Judah and for Hezekiah at this time was being spared of God's judgment. The people confessed this in verse 19, and did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had promised against them? They said, Hezekiah led the people in repentance, and you're here because of it. If Hezekiah had not turned from the Lord, we wouldn't be here. Yes, we know that Jerusalem is ultimately still about to face God's judgment in a matter of generations. Because everything that Micah threatened, everything that Jeremiah threatened, would come to pass in 586 when the temple would be destroyed and the nation would be carried off into captivity. But for Hezekiah, he saw his generation spared because of his response and the people's response to the word of God. He tasted the pardon and the compassion of the Lord as he led the people to humbly repent of their sins and plead with him for mercy. And sadly, the leaders of Jeremiah's day would refuse to follow suit. They would refuse to listen to the Lord's warning and his gracious offer to repent. They would not let the word of God conquer their stubborn and rebellious hearts. They would not let it drive them from their sin and to their holy, redeeming, and pardoning God. But still, we should have this conquering word of God stand as an encouragement for us today. Because even in the face of judgment against sin, there is hope of salvation. And we know it is found in none other than Jesus Christ. The word of God incarnate. The word of God that we have just celebrated, that came. Came in our flesh. That saw in our flesh and that conquered our sin and death and Satan himself by his death and his resurrection. Jesus did not in any way replace God's judgment and the reality of God's judgment against sin. 
but he declared it while taking it upon himself, taking the full weight of it upon himself for his people when he died on the cross. And he calls then all people to come and to respond to him just as Hezekiah did, not in continued rebellion and stubbornness and waywardness, but in humble repentance, turning from our sin and turning to Christ, the word that came, the word that saw, the word that conquered. And so bringing then this application, all of it to completion, first and foremost for each one of us this morning is the question, have you allowed Christ to conquer your sinful heart by turning you from sin and to him? If not, do it today and let today be the day of salvation for you. Because God's judgment against your sin stands if you are outside of Christ. But if you have turned, if Christ has conquered your sin, are you engaging with God's word as it exposes your sin and waywardness with a proper response of fear and repentance? Are you regularly drawing near to the throne of God's grace, not by your own merits, because you have none, but by the merits of Christ, who has conquered your sin and Satan and death, and are you pleading for God's mercy when you are wayward? Not based on your eagerness, not based on the, the level of sorrow that you fear, or not based on the level of genuineness that you think you are reflecting. But relying on the mercy of God that has been poured out to you, on you so abundantly in Jesus Christ. And then are you resting on God's grace and the assurance of his salvation and pardon for you in Christ? And then does that wonderful reality, does that good news of the gospel then move you to fear and to reverence? Does it lead you to sing with Micah at the end of this book, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression, because you delight in steadfast love. And so as we conclude both this sermon and as we also conclude a, a year and look forward to a new year, it is good for us to be reminded of what we already know and believe. The word of God is true. We live in a day where it is telling us more and more that it is anything but true. We need to rest all the more today at the end of 2023 and tomorrow at the beginning of 2024 that the word of our God is true. But it is also powerful. And it is working. And it does not change. And neither should we seek to change it. And so as we enter into this new year, may we not be tempted to look past, to grow weary of, heaven forbid to forsake or forget the tried and true word of God. It remains forever, while all other things will wither and fall. And it seeks to powerfully mold us and shape us, not into what we want, not into what we think we should be, but something better, into the image of Christ, 
that word of God that came, that saw, that conquered. And so by his power and his grace, may we see such a work in us individually and such a work in us as Covenant Presbyterian Church, faithfully ministering the word of God publicly, privately, every time we minister the word of God. For the word of God not only instructs, but aims to humble and lead us, his people, to fear and repentance. Let us pray. Our Father God, we thank you for your word. It is true. It does last forever. It is your living and active word that you have so graciously given us to tell us who you are. Forgive us for neglecting it. Forgiving, forgive us for thinking that there is life to be found elsewhere than in the pages of your word, than in your word revealed to us. Keep us coming to your word. Keep us seeing our sin as it is exposed to us in your word. And keep us repenting and turning from our sin, turning to you, our gracious, pardoning, redeeming God. Keep us following our faithful shepherd, Jesus Christ, today, tomorrow, until he calls his bride home, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.